So this weekend, I am wrapping up a series of messages that we have called Recovering Your Life. Today, we are going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, and consider what it means to live a Christ-centered life. When I was younger, like a teenager, 15, 16 years old, I had a really unhealthy relationship with my hair. About a month ago, someone sent me this picture from the archives. So that's me. <laughs> that, that look on my face, that's my, that's my teenage years. I mean, I, I spent years growing that hair, hours making sure it was perfect. There were even a couple of times I'm ashamed to admit that I borrowed my mother's curling iron so I could get the back nice and flowy. It was an identity thing for me, really. A lot of my life was centered on it. But then something happened. I wrestled in high school, and a wrestling coach informed me that my hair needed to be above my collar in order to compete. So I'll never forget that fateful day when I went and cut my hair. You, you don't realize how important something is to you until you no longer have it. We all ground and center our life in something or a set of something. But when I use the word grounded, what I mean is we all long or have this sense of clarity for our life, a, a sense of, of wholeness. And when I use the word centered, most of us, if not all of us, have a reference point that we come back to when things get challenging or when things feel off-balanced. The message of the gospel is essentially living a Christ-centered life. But to fully appreciate what that means, there is an ancient ideal, a word that describes what it is I'm talking about. That word is the word disciple. The word disciple is found throughout the Bible. The word disciple is a very ancient word. It finds its origination in the practice of Judaism and teachers calling students. And so I want to take you back to first century Israel. In first century Israel, uh, religion was everything. Yahweh was life. All of life revolved around the practice of faith. So about the time a child turns six years old, a child would begin to learn the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Every day, from six years old to 13 years old, kids would learn the Jewish scriptures. Not just like Sunday school, but be be completely meshed in the scriptures. By the time a child turned 13, most would have the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, mesmerized. Mem- memorized. You, you, ever, you ever read those books? That's a lot. That's a lot to take in. 
When a child turned 13, a child reached a milestone, a pivotal point in life. And there were typically three directions a 13-year-old child would go. If you were a 13-year-old girl, it was about that time you would start the preparation to get married. Young girls began the betrothal process around 13 years old. Now, if you were a boy, you had one of two options. The first option was if you believed that you were the best. I mean, the best of the best. If you believed you were Ivy League, if you believed you were D1 material, I mean, if you thought you were it, then you could approach a rabbi. Because in in the first century Israel, a rabbi was... Like that was the aspiration of every young man because a rabbi was the the top of the social ladder. And if you thought you could become a rabbi, if you believed that you were the best, you could then approach a rabbi and ask to become his student or his disciple. The rabbi would quiz you, ask you questions about the Torah, about the law. and, And if the rabbi agreed that you were the best of the best, that you could become like him. He would offer an invitation, which in Hebrew goes like this, Lech Acharai. And what that meant was, when you translate it into English, come follow me. And that young man would follow that rabbi and become his student and learn to become like the rabbi. Now, if you, if you weren't the best of the best, of the best, you were told, essentially, you're not going to become a rabbi. Go and ply the family business. Go and ply your trade. Meaning, if your dad was a carpenter, you wouldn't become a carpenter. If your dad was a fisherman, you would become a fisherman. But if you were the best of the best, you would leave everything. And you would follow the rabbi, and you would learn what was called his yoke, or his interpretation of the law, his way. You learn to become like him. You followed him so closely that everywhere he went, where he slept, what he ate, you were right there. So much so that in a in a collection of rabbinic thought called the Mishnah, which dates back to the year 200 BC to the year 200 AD, there's a quote from Rabbi Yosef ben Yozer, and he's speaking about the relationship between a rabbi and his disciple. And he writes, let thy house be a meeting house for the wise and powder thyself in the dust of their feet and drink their words with thirstiness. That phrase, I love love that phrase, and powder thyself in the dust of their feet. Sometimes this was translated as a blessing which went like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, may you walk so closely, so intimately with your rabbi that as he walked the dusty streets of Israel, the the dirt from his feet would be kicked up onto you. Well, in first century Israel, this new rabbi comes onto the scene. His name is Yeshua. Or Jesus. And he begins to call disciples, but he does so in a bit of an unorthodox way. The rest of the New Testament is about 
discipleship. So how then do we live as 21st century, modern day disciples of Jesus? I mean, in many ways, our, our world today, though it's very different from first century Israel, also has some of the same challenges. In first century Israel, there was instability, there was division, there was moral decay. If you read about ancient Israel, what you discover is that it was a time of oppression and instability, mostly because of a king named Herod. King Herod was a puppet of the Roman Empire. King Herod was greedy, he was ambitious, and because he was ambitious, he began these massive building programs, creating cities to bring him honor and glory. Well, if you endeavor on a major building program, what do you need? Well, you need resources, right? You need money. You need people. How do you get the money from the people? Well, you tax them. And the people were heavily taxed. So much so that these these simple farmers were taxed to the point that they would go into debt. Now, in order to pay your bills, if you were in debt, you would need to take out a loan. And many did. There was only one person in the community that could provide you with the resources that you needed, and that was the local tax collector, because they controlled the money. So not only did you pay taxes to the tax collector, you could also borrow money from the tax collector at an interest rate between 25 and 50%. So imagine your home, your car, your credit card, the percentage rate is 25 to 50%. Because of that, many went into dire poverty, and because Many went into dire poverty. There was malnutrition. Because there was malnutrition, there was sickness, which is why when you read the Gospels, it seems like the sick and the poor are everywhere. It's because they were. Life was a heavy burden. But then this new rabbi shows up. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. This rabbi named Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my interpretation upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Fast forward 60 years later to a man named the Apostle Paul writing a letter to a church in a city called Corinth. Still a time of instability, still a time of division and moral decay. But on top of that, the Christian church has been born. Jesus started his church, and many of the Apostle Paul's letters to these churches were written in part because there were challenges within the church themselves. Nothing ever seems to change, right? You you get a bunch of people together, and there's going to be problems. And there are problems in the first century church. And so in first, in second Corinthians chapter five, the apostle Paul is actually defending himself because some have made judgments against his character. And so he spends part of the time in this letter defending himself, but then he moves on to describe what it looks like to have a meaningful life as a disciple centered on Jesus. 
Because Jesus' desire is that you would have a full and meaningful life. Jesus even declared in John chapter 10 that he's come that you may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. Those who study human behavior believe that life is meaningful when three things happen. First, when your life makes sense and has continuity. I mean, we want life that makes sense. We want there to be some stability. Life is meaningful when we are directed and motivated by, by meaningful goals. And life is meaningful when my existence matters to another human being. And the Bible would affirm all of these things. When I consider the mission statement of our church, Northbrook Church exists to make compelling followers of Christ, which comes from our text today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. This mission statement is framed by three words, many of you know them, discover, grow, and share. A Christ-centered life truly begins when I discover a full relationship with him. I mean, what do you do when you make an unexpected discovery? Imagine you go down into your basement this week and you pull out the winter coats because, oh, it's coming. You dust them off, you put it on to make sure it still fits, and you just happen to reach in the pocket and you find a $100 bill that you did not know was there. Maybe your kid put it, oh, their kid wouldn't have a $100 bill, but, but you know, you, you find this $100 bill and you are like, wow! And what you think now is, how am I going to spend this? Oh, lucky me. Or, or what do you do when you, you find a new restaurant? for the very first time, and oh, you love it. What do you do? You tell everybody. My family and I have been going down to Fort Myers, Florida for 20 years. My parents have a home down there, and one time we were there, and we discovered this hot dog stand called Matt's Red Hots. Matt, the owner, is from Buffalo, the motherland, and he makes hot dogs charbroiled like we made them in Buffalo. I'm telling you, you go to Fort Myers... You stop by and see Matt. He'll take real good care of you. Other discoveries, well, they're not so great. When I was in elementary school, I got called down to the nurse's office. I had no idea why. She sat me down, and then she started to do something bizarre. She was going through my hair. And she said, no, nope, you got to go home. I'm like, Why? My whole street got sent home because we all had lice. All so gross. When you make a discovery, either good or not so good, there's always a response and there's always an action. There is this moment of discovery for me. It happened in 1990 at War Memorial Stadium in Syracuse, New York. I was invited by a friend of mine to go to a Christian youth convention. I sat in War Memorial Stadium and listened to this guy give a talk, give a message. And it was in that moment that I discovered that Jesus thought I was worth it. Oh, my teenage years were a bit tumultuous. I had a lot of, well, a lot of downs, not a whole lot of ups, but a lot of downs. I struggled deeply with depression. But in that moment, in War Memorial Stadium in 1990... I heard that the God of the universe thought that I was worth it. And there was a response. And the response that I had, I, I now 
referred to as, as repentance. I changed my ways. I turned and started walking in a different direction. Maybe some of you remember that moment. Can you go back there in your mind to that moment where you truly discovered Christ and what Christ really believed about you? Maybe for some of you, that moment is right now. Maybe you're hearing for the first time that Jesus thinks that you're worth it. I mean, Jesus' disciples had the same kind of moment. There's a story in the Gospels about two of Jesus' disciples, James and John. The story begins with Jesus walking along the sea of Galilee, and he sees two brothers, James and John, with their father Zebedee, and they're fishing. And Jesus walks up to them and says, come and follow me, lekakarai. And James and John immediately drop their nets, and they, they follow Jesus. Now, when I, I read that story, my kind of my 21st century mind, my inclination is that they just left their dad fishing. Like, I just see the dad, you kids, what? they just left. But I want you to consider this for a moment. If James and John are fishing, that means they're plying the family trade. That means they were not the best of the best of the best. And yet here comes this rabbi who says, come and follow me. If a rabbi called you, you would drop your nets immediately. And their father Zebedee, he wasn't like, you don't care. He was probably step back. Maybe with a tear in his eye, thinking, someone thinks my boys are the best of the best. Jesus invites them into a whole new way of life. See, see, Jesus' method of calling disciples was a bit unorthodox because traditionally, a potential disciple would approach a rabbi and asked to become his disciple. But Jesus flipped the script. Jesus approached students and asked them to become his disciple. And he found a whole bunch of unlikely characters. Those that the culture said were not the best of the best. But Jesus says, I, I beg to differ. Come and follow me. Into a whole new way of life. So if we go back to the text, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. As I sat in War Memorial Stadium in 1990, I discovered what it means to become a new creation because at the very center of the Christian faith is a transformational relationship with Jesus in which I discovered that all my faults and failures were not held against me. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So a disciple is called. The disciples discover Jesus. But then there was the expectation of growth. That we would grow in our faith. Second Corinthians chapter 5 begins in verse 11. The Apostle Paul's writing, he says, For we know what it is to fear the Lord. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10, the writer says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I found it... A bit odd and ironic that the Apostle Paul would talk about fear being a starting place. When you take the word fear from the Greek language and you translate it into English, it has a, an expansive meaning. It can mean to, to stand in awe and reverence of something, but it can also be terrified of something. So when I think of my relationship with, with God, I, I believe God to be gracious and compassionate and kind and good. All of those things. 
But when I consider the God of all creation, there's a little bit of fear. The God who spoke and everything came into existence. The God who created something out of nothing and then he hung it on nothing. That's a lot. I think that the best analogy ever given for this is, is from the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've read it or seen the movie at least. In the story, there's a character, a young girl named Susan, and she's talking with another character named Mr. Beaver, creatively named because he's a beaver, right? And, and she's about to meet Aslan. Aslan is the Christ figure in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and he's portrayed as a lion. And she says, Susan says, Aslan is a lion? Yes, Aslan's a lion. He's the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Oh, I think that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Is he safe? Of course he's not. He's the God of the universe. But he's, but he's good. So I grow in my relationship with that God. And he places some of the growth responsibility on me. When individuals approach me from time to time and say, Pastor Mike, I just feel like I'm not growing in my faith. I just feel like I'm stuck. My response is, well, what are you practicing? Because if you want to grow, you practice. That's why we call it practicing our faith. I mean, if you're an athlete, how do you become a better athlete? You practice, and you follow the instruction of your coach. If you're a musician, how do you become a better musician? You practice, and you follow the instructions of your instructor. I want to grow my faith. I practice my faith, and I follow the instruction of my teacher. Because, see, the the goal of the Christian faith isn't simply to go to heaven when I die. The goal of the Christian faith is Christ-likeness, becoming like him. Jesus called you because he believes you can become like him. Apostle Paul goes on to say, and because of this, verse 14, Christ's love compels us, motivates us, challenges us to share our life. And when I share my life, I thoughtfully and deliberately see people differently. Verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Do you realize Jesus did not look at others from a worldly point of view? I mean, Jesus spent time with criminals, with prostitutes, with Roman soldiers. Oh, the Jewish people hated Roman soldiers. They were the hand of oppression. Tax collectors, they were traitors. Tax collectors were Jews who defected to the other side. And yet Jesus, who was Jewish, spent time with all of these people. Because a Christ-centered life changes our view and perception. It's no longer the them or the other. And all we all have an other. If you're like me, then you can be rather judgmental. Yes, we can all, like I can judge with the best of them, really. And I bet you can too. You walk down the street, I I can't believe she's wearing that. You know, we all, 
we can all be incredibly judgmental, particularly when it's someone that we disagree with. We label them the other, forgetting that like you and like me, they are also created in God's image, in God's likeness. I mean, the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, had his own change of perception. Because if you go back to the book of Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 7, there's a scene with a young man named Stephen, who's a leader in the early Christian church. And Stephen is preaching to the Jewish leaders. And they're so offended by what he says that they stone him to death. They kill him by throwing rocks at him till he dies. And then at the very end of that chapter, we read this. And there was a man there named Saul who approved of their killing of him. That man Saul, who stood there and approved of their killing, would later become the Apostle Paul, the writer of much of the New Testament. Skipping to chapter 8, again speaking of Saul, who becomes Paul. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison, entered their home, and quite literally dragged them out of their house because of what they believed. But then, but then Saul had a profound discovery. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he might, if he found it in there, might that belong to the way, which was what Christianity was re- referred to, whether men or women, he might make them prisoners in Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Saul had a moment, a moment which he discovered who Christ was. And as he grew in his faith, Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, begins to share his life in such a profound way that he writes that he's being poured out like a drink offering. And eventually he gives him his life for what it is that he believes and represents. But it began when he started to see differently. He saw Christians as the others to becoming like them. Do we, do we need to see differently? I mean, who is your other? Because we all have one. See, when I share my life, My life quite literally becomes the message of good news and reconciliation. Verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You ever had a relationship go bad? Humanity's relationship with God went bad in Genesis chapter 2. And the rest of the Bible is God pursuing reconciliation with us. I came to faith in Christ because someone took the risk and shared their life with me. And because they shared their life with me, I discovered 
that Jesus thought I was worth it. That Jesus thought I was good enough. That Jesus thought you were good enough. So let me end with this question. Am I religious? Or am I a disciple? Because there's a difference. Am I becoming like Jesus? Because Jesus believes that you are worth it. That you are the best of the best. And that you can become like him. So now, God, as we just pause for a moment, as we consider our life, our faith, first let me say I'm thankful, grateful, that you thought I was worth it. And would you help me, God, in all of my imperfections, in all of my faults, in all of my sins and failures, that you would help me to become like you? Oh, I know I screw it up a lot, but God, I know that your mercy is new every morning. Your faithfulness is never ending. Help us to become a church of disciples, those who want to follow you. God, may we walk so closely, so faithfully, that we do in fact become like you. Amen.